Welcome to another edition of the Hit the Lights podcast. I have a very special guest with me today, Mr. Richard Emery. How are we? Very well, Gary. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. I'm um, sweating a bit today. but uh, <laughs> oh, It's roasty, toasty. <laughs> it really is, yeah. Uh, have you uh, been in, out enjoying the sun or have you uh, back to work? Um, well, I've I've been busy all the way through, although it's a lot of it's been working from home. Um, I'm back out on site for three days last week and I've got uh, this week off that had been booked previous to all of this kicking off. Mm. Um, so I've had uh, a kitchen to decorate and I've had a collapsed drain in the back garden to dig up and find and sort out. And, and part of the problem were two tennis balls that my dog delivered down the um, the, the hopper that right, okay. jammed in, in one of the corners. So that's been the two of the hottest days to have in the garden, digging up um, concrete and trying to get underneath and actually yeah. find out where the problem was. Yeah, no, I, can, I can imagine, yeah, digging in this heat. I've done that many times in boiler suits and it's not mm. fun. <laughs> no fun at all. Yeah. So maybe um, if we go back to the beginning then, and what made you decide to join the electrical industry? Um, well, when I left school, I made an attempt. Uh, there was a bit of an, an attempt from the school to try and uh, direct us to a, a route that they thought that we might be useful in doing. Um, for me, university never came up. Went to the local engineering college in Chichester and did an aptitude test, and they thought I might be I might be quite good at something mechanical. So I started um, an ONC in general engineering. Mm-hmm. I didn't go terribly well. I discovered that I quite liked alcohol and, and women. Yeah. And everything went <laughs> south from there. As you do um, at 18. And <laughs> yeah, you know, just coming out of school. And it was coming out of a little village in West Sussex and going into the the bright lights of Chichester, as it was at the time. Yeah. Um, hanging around with the uh, with the red caps in the garrison up there. And uh, just getting out and getting into mischief sort of dragged me offline a little bit. So after the first year of a fairly unsuccessful um attempt at an onc i decided that uh, the navy would be a better route uh, my dad was less enthusiastic when he heard that, that the navy might involve the royal marines mm. um, my parents had split when i was four so he was a, a distance father i used to spend time um over there working he had a farm over in hampshire so I was uh, quite often involved in the farm type stuff and he'd picked up um, a waning electrical business that um, was going bankrupt and he'd taken taken over the, the lead part of that and bailed them out, mainly because the electrical company did a lot of work for him on the farm, keeping stuff going and he suggested that I might like to go and do an apprenticeship with them. Right. So that was a JIB based apprenticeship. Had the indentures signed by the directors of the company and myself and my mum. And that was a contract. So there were there were implications on either side if you didn't follow that contract through to the end. Uh, that was mainly around uh, domestic 
a lot of social housing rewires, Winchester, a lot rewiring a lot of the council houses, um, coal dust filled lofts and getting up and uh, involved in that sort of thing. A lot of uh, agricultural work, SWAs, tray work and um, got on pretty well with that. Did my first year in uh, 83, 84, did my AM1. And then uh, looking at the the logbook, the portfolio I had to get signed off, there were going to be gaps in that that the current company couldn't meet. And my uncle came on to the field who ran a fairly large electrical company in Chandler's Ford. So I went off to him in 84 and did the second year at college. So first year was um, block release. Second year was day release. And from there, I did 84, 85 at college and then 86, 87. I did my AM2 and picked up my JIB accreditation Mm. and Almost within six months, Maggie Thatcher decided it'd be quite a nice idea if we all went self-employed. So I went self-employed and started contracting for um, initially them and then a series of um, NIC registered contractors. So there was shop fitting up and down the country, spent quite a lot of time away uh, between 85 and 87 We would do um, commercial refits, 72-hour refits on shops. Spent uh, six months, seven months up in Newcastle and Gateshead in the first first phase of the metro centre up there. Um, MOD work, did quite a lot of work in Portsmouth. Um, Agricultural work, uh, on-call, job in electrician. Worked in ATEX, Compex, as it was, um, explosive atmospheres as it was then. I don't think ATEX and Compex even existed back back in the 80s. Yeah. It was a phrase that I was aware of until later. Uh, then when CIS reared its ugly head mm. and the main contractors thought it'd be quite nice to have 20% of my money at source, I decided that I didn't quite like that arrangement so I actually turned my what was a self-employed business subcontracting into a self-employed business where I actually got my own work in so that was um, light commercial uh, domestic um, agricultural work Mm -hmm. locally and in around 2005 I had 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 a recurring back problem, but the the knees were starting to complain. The back was starting to complain. Didn't particularly like me getting down to do sockets or um, up into lofts. So I went into work for a local NIC company as a uh, qualifying supervisor. Uh, did the contract project management, uh, quoting, uh, the design side for mainly um, larger commercial uh, sorry, larger domestic commercial industrial fitting, mainly in Hampshire, bit in bit in Wiltshire and a bit up into Berkshire, but 
generally tied into the south coast uh about 12 months after being there i got asked to apply for a job working for a big uh, well working for an fm provider working for a big telecoms company right and uh, i decided to go and see what that was like and that opened up the world of hv uh multi-megawatt generator installations big ups systems Mm. negative 54 volt dc systems mm. and uh, uh just a, a whole different environment the uh, the life of a, an ap uh, an authorized person yeah um, permitting safe systems of work that if anything we'd barely paid lip service for uh in the last 20 odd years uh, mm. i don't remember risk assessments being around much i certainly don't remember caring particularly about working live Mm -hmm. it was something that um as a contractor you just cracked on with yeah the the, the, the dreaded um insulation tape for locking off breakers something that would make louis taggart turning a uh, turning a seat um horrific stories of near electric shocks where you're on shop refits and you you haven't isolated stuff or the supervisor hasn't isolated stuff yeah so uh, that brought me into a a whole different control regime where you uh, there's a lot a lot more control over your isolations the isolation registers um, safe systems of work risks and method statements are all bolted to the floor yeah. And of course, you're working with um, private net, private network HV systems. So mm. 11,000 volt systems, uh, the multiple sources of supply switchboards that would have um, two or three, two uh, megawatt UPSs, uh, two or three, two megawatt generators fed off a couple of 11,000 volt transformers and a contractor has got to come in and do maintenance on those uh, and and how you can provide resilience to a client and ensure that the systems are safe. Um, So you've obviously detailed quite a bit there in terms of your development into the HV element of works. Did you have to undergo some retraining to enter that field? Uh, initially it was site supervision as a competent person so you would be receiving the permits from the from the authorized people but as i got to know the systems within the south of england then i started uh, developing towards the authorized person's role Mm. so from there went off and did the um, hv maintenance courses protection courses and the uh well they call it a senior authorized persons course but uh, i that that's being very kind to it um having grown in the industry a bit more i i know where the senior authorized persons are and they don't generally come off the back of these training courses yeah the the, the dreaded short course creeps in all over the place and it doesn't necessarily have to stop with the ones that we we're usually concentrating around yeah. But yeah, de- development. So the the good old um, skate scenario, skills, knowledge, attitude, training and experience. No, yeah. education is the last one. Sorry. Um, so you can you can get the training, you can get the education, you can have the the right attitude to it. 
um, but you still need the skills and the knowledge to be able to operate in those systems, mm-hmm. understanding how things work, how things are interlaced together. So that becomes a bigger bit that you have to show the authorizing engineer that you're safe to work on those systems, produce mm-hmm. the safety documentation uh, to allow the contractors to go on. So there was a, a portion of that and that a lot of that is refreshed every three three to five years. So you have to go back and do the courses again. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I mean that's sensible, isn't it? A lot of the safety management courses now have got like three to five year expiration dates on them, haven't they? And it is sensible. And potentially it, it's something that really could start to be applied wider throughout the industry in terms of refreshing and and keeping people up to date on on many things, not just management and safety. The the, the problem as a general industry is that we don't have the monitoring and we don't have the auditing mm. on an individual level. And and I'm going to completely discount our, um, our voluntary regulatory organisations that we've got lurking around. Uh, I'm a member of one. And as a sole trader, I would be audited at, at, at an individual level, albeit quickly and not terribly thoroughly, probably. Um on on the bigger scale you don't have to be registered with any of these bodies and nobody might ever look at your work other than the client mm. so what have we got in place to comply with the the um, management of health and safety at work where you've got to monitor and audit your systems to ensure that you're safe well yeah nothing <laughs> indeed so within the environment i work in uh, i have a um a three-year cycle of peer-to-peer review mm-hmm. so everything i've done is reviewed um three-yearly by uh, a, a body of engineers that look at my work i've gone on now from being an ap so i now operate as an ae so I then monitor all the APs that sit under me. So mm. they all get monitored at least once a year. And if I can swing it, they'll get uh, they'll get a cold call visit within that 12 month period as well. I will check everything that they've done within reason. If they've done hundreds of documents, then I'll do a percentage of it. But generally we will see everything they've done. We'll take them out into the field. We'll talk about some of the jobs they've done we'll mm. look at their paperwork and we'll scrutinize it with a fine tooth comb um hopefully give them some uh, useful information a pat on the back and congratulate them for doing well sometimes we might have to question a little bit further why they why they've done stuff in a certain way mm. but uh yeah generally within sort of like your your uh, mod jsp format or your healthcare, the HTMs, and within uh, some of the bigger commercial um, setups at the Safe Systems of Work, they'll have a, a policy and a process in place that will allow the seniors to check up on the on the less senior, and then the less senior to check up on the competent people working underneath them. Mm. Do you find it it links quite well into the quality systems that are in place as well? Um, it can do. Uh, the the quality systems uh, can 
can work well with part of the auditing. It tends to run in line with whatever your governing uh, documentation is directing you towards and what your local policies are. If your company has looked at a given set of guidance and most safe systems of work for the electrical and mechanical confined space, restricted high places and petroleum are based on the JSP 375 suite of documents. Um, But then you've got to have a local set of how you're going to implement those on your sites. Mm. And the interpretation of the the requirements the safety requirements that uh, need to be in place it can be interpreted well a lot of people do a very good job of it Uh, some people don't do quite such a good job of it and and i have been involved previously in helping clients understand the requirements build these policies and procedures to to give them a foot in the door so that the guys are safe right from the very start Mm. yeah i think that's that probably ties in with my experiences where you've got I've, well I've had clients that are just so unaware and are oblivious to their roles under like the electricity at work regulations and bits and pieces like that that you have to educate them first on their statutory requirements and then you can start to go and build the processes to support that and then you, you slowly build into the main the maintenance systems the quality control and then it becomes about the education of the staff and who are actually doing it. And they they finally, once you kind of get to that level of education and they realise how, uh, not unsupported, but how inadequate their systems were previously and how exposed they were, that they carry that forward. And generally, I think the, the two main clients I've had actually Im- implement the systems that I've advised on are still implementing them now. It's it's a it's a development. Once you've started putting these things in place, it's going back, um, monitoring what's been done, auditing it on a regular basis, correcting, adjusting, moving stuff so it works, works mm. on site. It's still safe. It's a, it's a live document generally. You need to go round and round and round until you get something that's that's uh, that's suitable policy and procedure for the guys working on site. I yeah. think probably probably our biggest thing is contractors coming in, and how do we ensure they're competent to do the the, the work that they've been sent to do? Mm. Previously, I've had guys. Um, we've it has become very difficult with GPRD to get test certificates and qualifications out of companies but even just getting a letter of uh, competency out of a of a of an employer that says x y and z are competent to do the work they're being sent for mm. and then getting the right guys turning up on site on the day yeah and i wouldn't see that because i'm two three four five hundred miles away uh, but the AP suddenly finds that that he's got another contractor that he's got no information on has turned up on site to do possibly a time critical role that that he's got to say, well, hang on a minute, you can't do that. I don't know who you are. You've just turned up. Your company shouldn't have sent you. And mm. um, kind of empowering them to say, you know, the, 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 the stop to work, uh, stop working um, authority 
yeah that they can actually step back and say well i'm sorry you can't start this work it's not safe i don't know who you are uh and and getting that getting that in place and then getting people to understand the the permitting procedures and locking off tagging off Mm -hmm. it it works slightly different under a formal safe system of work than it would work in in a domestic environment where you control the the the, all all the isolations yourself generally yeah uh, and and you hope the um the decorator doesn't come along and and cut your padlocks off or do whatever they need to do to get the power on so they've got lights to do the decorating yeah yeah no i quite agree one of the things we've started uh implementing is um obviously doing capturing that in the tender process mm. so starting you know not necessarily at the pre-qualification uh stage but slightly later probably just asking for what teams what names and cvs of the guys who <clears throat> we anticipate delivering the work um is, is a is a nice step and then obviously like you say you've got that recognition of no, I was expecting, you know, Steve Collins um, to to be delivering this work. He's the the designated uh, person on you on your tender. And actually, getting getting the right level of qualification, getting uh, contractors to understand that maybe a certain level of training that guys have received and they've been led to believe they're going to be electricians when they've completed it. Mm. Uh, and and kind of building in a um, an expectation of what qualifications that you've you expect on the on the output yeah uh, the the sort of the spark safe sort of format where they where they dictate what the qualifications are going to be much yeah. the same as the uh, the um, competent person schemes. Uh, QS model where you know what level that these guys should have when they're when they're coming forwards yeah well yeah that's definitely it but you know requesting a, a QS is, is a pretty basic start for a project isn't it and every project should have one on it well you've got this thing that certainly previously a lot these guys would be somewhere else but for me, the telltale sign is the fact that they're supposed to be a qualifying supervisor. And it's very difficult to supervise if you're not on site. Exactly. Yeah. If, if not all the time, then certainly a lot of the time. Mm. And uh, the, the, the guys, there was a and it's probably still happens quite a lot now where they they employ gangs to do the installs, the cable pullers, the metal munchers. Mm. They then got the guys coming in and doing the second fix. And then a guy turns up to test it at the end. But he can't possibly verify that installation if that's the first time he's set foot on site Mm. and getting people to understand that actually these guys need to have been on site regularly throughout the whole install to to be able to verify that that, uh, the complete installation is compliant. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. so what's what's one of the uh, the most challenging things you've found to date? Um, old school attitudes, probably. Yeah. The good old we uh, we used we, we've always done it this way. Attitude. Is is that something uh, you've seen throughout your career slowly starting to move away from it, or is it still very much alive and kicking at the moment? 
there is there is uh unfortunately my generation is still working and still likely to be working for the next 10 years or so uh, there uh it, it is common um it it may be less common in an environment where i'm working now and have been for the last few years because the the safe systems of work ensure that the right attitudes are in place from the start mm. and if they're not in place then they don't happen uh, they're caught and they're removed um there will be elements i don't know i used to do a lot of shop fitting that was a fairly ghastly uh, set of install uh, techniques used in in the 90s and and potentially the late 80s early 90s the the whole uh, domestic environment i did uh, i did um an eicr was called in to do a uh, a full report on the building and i think i found 96 c1s right in a three-bedroom house Jesus. No, it's not C1, C2, sorry. There was one C1. No, I was, was going to say, live, there, was a, there was a live cable live cable underneath the vanity unit in the bathroom, which was supposed to be terminated into a shaver socket that never arrived. Right. There were, there were just everything you touched had uh, problems with earth continuity, um, earth sleeving, enclosing terminations in joint boxes. The, 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 you see it almost daily on Instagram, the the good old downlighter yeah. where somebody's pulled it down and the cables all hanging out. Um, in my particular install, they didn't bother connecting any of the CPCs up. Right. Uh, yet it received a um, a completion certificate, and I went to the furthest light, and I couldn't get an R1 R2 mm. on it because there was no uh, there was no um, continuity through the system at all. So was it a drive-by? Did he? So, some of them, uh, I, I think drive-by would be a little bit rough on him because he'd stepped foot in the house, but he'd obviously done some some tests at the distribution board because they looked accurate. But as soon as you started moving out into the house, yeah. it was fairly clear to me that he hadn't done the work. Right. He'd been brought in by somebody else, by a builder come and do a test on this mate we've done all the wiring for you and uh, just just not a good state and i think the more you look at uh, social media the the more you see uh, and if it's and if it's 10% of 10% of the industry and there's 250,000 registered electrical workers in the system there's there's an awful lot of poor workmanship um, either, either by the the misled domestic installers that have done a short course, mm. um, or by people who should know better. And uh, you can also see a lot of people that have been in the industry a long time, and they should damn well know better than to do what they're doing. Mm. But you still get it. Yeah, no, I, I quite agree. Um, so what, on, on that then, what would be something you'd like to see introduced into the industry? For me, it's got to be individual auditing and individual monitoring. Monitoring. 
And if you don't have a system in place within your safe system of work, as some of the bigger companies will have, then you need to put something in place, be it a competent person scheme where they actually individually monitor the output of each spark. And there are implications if their if their output isn't of a suitable standard. Mm. And that be, might be retraining. That might be more intensive supervision by a nominated person. That might be exclusion. But the problem is with the exclusions at the moment, what do they achieve? Well, yeah, they can just move to another CPS. Yeah, or don't have one at all. We, yeah, we, only well, need, we only need a CPS scheme if your specification, your contract requires you to have the NIC, mm-hmm. which they seem to. Um, or if you're working in a domestic environment and you don't have to have it in a domestic environment. So it kind of makes it a little bit pointless. Yeah, no. So obviously that that would be quite an involved thing to implement into the um into the wider domestic market is there anything because i mean one of the things i've kind of found uh, probably through my journey was i was industrial probably similar to yourself worked industrially for about 10 years through my apprenticeship right up to uh, leaving the last company and it was only when i actually started doing some of the domestic work that i really started to become aware of the issues in the industry and seeing you know the poor quality work and stuff because i'd always been shielded by safe systems of work and you know ha- having the right protocol in place in where i'd done my installs um and probably a lot of it to do as well with the guidance of the electricians i was working with but how do you think we can start to solve that in the domestic fee- uh, the domestic sector I would I would like to say some sort of licensing scheme um, where you have a uh, a roadmap a a driving license if you will where you're accredited as you as you work through the system but we we also need a a system that's going to work for people that are coming out of school and starting an apprenticeship or people that are 30 or 40 and wanting to get into the system uh, a lot of people are saying well get rid of short courses get rid of short courses but there are a lot of good electricians about that have done short courses and they've put in place the the necessary training in addition and familiarization with their systems after they've finished mm. that without without a formalized roadmap I, I don't know how you can start tagging people into a position uh, there is you know any anybody can call themselves an engineer anybody can can call themselves an electrician when we see that you know, domestic installers courses turn out a domestic electrician after uh, 18 days or whatever it is there, there, there needs to be a little bit more uh, control over who can be affiliated as an electrician Mm. yeah no i quite agree with that um on a on a slightly more positive note then what do you enjoy about the electrical industry uh i enjoy probably of this sort of thing i enjoy talking to people um it, it doesn't bother me whether they are 
an electrician on their last day at work or retired or they're an apprentice within the first week of their training because you can learn off everybody everybody's got a slightly different take on it Mm. the uh i have to do the appointed persons courses as an authorizing engineer i have to do all the courses that the appointed people have to do and it's uh every every course is an eye opener it's a reminder of where you've come from and different attitudes to what's being done so i think it's important to engage with the industry engage with your peers uh, engage with the apprentices uh, i've started um, reaching out to the local college and going in but been in once i've got some gear to drop off to them when the lockout is uh, over mm-hmm. but just in just engaging with each other and and i find um, instagram i i like i've kind of gone off the boil with uh, linkedin at the minute mm-hmm. but uh, i think we've been connected on both for uh, quite a while but i don't do facebook i got off there a couple of years ago i never got into twitter uh, i don't need the negativity of it all mm-hmm. um there are people that sometimes you need to reach out to and sometimes they won't accept it and sometimes they will accept it and sometimes you get positive feedbacks off a conversation and sometimes you don't mm-hmm. but uh, i think uh, and i've been in the industry 30 something years and uh every day is a school day yeah. not a day goes past where you're not picking up something uh, i terminated my first um micc cable in something like 25 years because somebody asked about it I said, right. okay, I'll do, do a video for you. So I find all my old tools out, blag a bit of cable, buy some pots and seals and do that. And uh, it, it's it's interesting that although I hadn't done it for probably 25 years, it, it comes back. Mm. It's still in the system. And you can you can impart some of your knowledge to people and you can give you can get a load back from other people. Doesn't matter what age they are. I had a conversation is it uh mike which one is residual current yeah that's mike yeah so i had a conversation with him i couldn't find something somebody said oh we'll have a chat with mike and uh he put me straight on to the bit of kit i needed uh what's mike 23 yeah well he's certainly very young yeah oh he's half my age and and if i can get stuff off him then you should be able to look past people's ages and just get on and get some information out of them if they want something back from me it's all free and uh you know these guys are brilliant uh, they'll do a lot better than i have done um they 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 just got a completely different work ethic to some of the guys you see some of the some of the older guys could could learn a lot uh and some of the younger guys as well um there are brilliant brilliant electricians out there these days that are really pushing the boundaries mm. yeah they, they certainly are i mean you kind of say you've had you've had uh your, what 30 odd years in in the career where do you see yourself going next <laughs> uh, not retiring anytime soon i don't think no <laughs> um no my my industry as a as a consultant as an authorizing engineer 
is unlikely to change very much in the next 10 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. If I can bring on and develop other people, uh, I've gone into um, slightly different disciplines, so boilers and pressure systems, confined space, starting to get involved in ATEX and petroleum pole installations. Yeah. So there is still plenty to learn. There's still plenty to do. So it's uh, it's just keeping keeping on, keeping on, grinding away, trying to make my YouTube channel slightly less rubbish than it is. Um, yeah, just carry on learning, carry on learning. So I've, part of my role is you've got to keep a development plan. You've got to keep a, uh, a trading plan and a logbook. So all of this means that you need to be able to show every year that you've done something. Mm-hmm. And uh, the 30 hours that you have to do with with ING is frankly ridiculous. I think I'm usually up more around the 200 hours a year of CPD. Yeah. Um, I do stuff with the IET. I've been uh, trying to help the the guys out with the EngTech electrician um, accreditation that's been starting up. Uh, done a done a uh, a couple of shows with them just trying to support some of the guys that uh, haven't had the support they needed when they've been applying for their professional registration. Yeah. Well, I've, I've, I found that. Um, so, Cause obviously I only very recently did I get um, chartership, but literally as soon as I kind of shared that, I had so many people approaching me um, saying, Oh, could you help? Could you help? And I felt like, Yes, I probably could help, but obviously I'm not in a kind of official capacity, which is why I went away and I tried to become a, you know, a, a PRA or, yeah, so, or whatever it is. Yeah, so I've, I've applied and been accepted for that. But like you say, it's one of those where I want to reach out, but I don't want to kind of, if heaven forbid something went wrong, <laughs> I don't want it's to be a, able it's to. A learning, it's a learning progress. It's, it's understanding what the assessors are looking for yeah trying to get the information back in a concise uh, manner the, the the biggest problems is is that there are a large um uh, uh, amount of people that actually don't have the professional um academic qualifications they need to go straight in so there's a there's a piece of work to get them to think uh, about what they've done and how it ticks off the 17 competencies on the um, the Engineering Council's UK spec mm. and getting them to break that up. And I, I think getting help early before you've started on the route and started doing stuff wrong, get in, get in touch with the, um, the, uh, the uh, Institute of Engineering and Te- Technology um, other professional bodies are available but uh yeah get it get in touch with them get uh, a professional registration assistant um early doors so they can they can give you a bit of a a, a guidance on the right route my uh my chartered application has been scuppered by a couple of short-term jobs that kind of sets me back um carillion wasn't terribly helpful right that, uh, having having um left one company and gone to Carillion. I wasn't expecting that to last eight months. So that's what wanting, wanting some experience and some continuity in my work experience. 
Uh, I need to give it a bit of time before I look back and restructure what I've already done. Right. Okay. And get it get it thrown back at my PRA. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. You should say that. Does, does that really blemish the the years of of good work that you've done? Um. They they like to see what your current role is. Um, and if you've only been in that current role two or three months, it can be difficult to get any great value out of that. Mm. And if you're looking at doing, I don't know, half a page or a page worth of uh, descriptions on what your current job is, and you've only been there a couple of months and you're probably still in your probation, then it can be it can be hard. Uh, so that's why I've decided to give it a bit of a break. You've also right. got to have a boss that's preferred to, prepared to sign that that off at the end of the day. They've got yeah. to they've got to sign off your um, your uh, initial oh dear what is it the development plan. There's the initial development plan that says how you make the um, 17 competencies. Yeah. So that's got to be signed off by somebody as a, and, and as a sponsor. They do like to see your line manager as uh, as one of those sponsors. Mm. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was it was one of those things that I had developed along like and without a plan um, and probably just through being fortunate and having a variety of installs, but working for the same company and then moving into the role I'm in now, it, it, like you say, it was only till somebody actually pointed it out to me and said, you should probably have a look at chartership and, and stuff like that. And I was like, well, I assumed I haven't got a degree. I'm never going to have a, a hope in hell um, at achieving that because when I'd briefly looked before, I'd glossed over it and all I'd seen is must have, you know, a master's or, or something. Um, Unfortunately, when did I start? I probably started 18 months ago and I went to one of their um, application meetup groups. Right. And and the guy that I was um, scheduled to sit with and discuss my my application basically said, if you don't have a master's, then you're not going to get it. And And that's only recently. So there are still issues, and I know they're they're working at these issues within the system. Mm. But um, even within the last year, I've had duff information from people that are supposed to be giving me good information. It's it's hard work. It, it shouldn't be easy, but it would be nice if we can have um, a consistent output across the across the board. EngTech is is your foot in the door, and it gets you used to doing the paperwork and keeping the the logs and the kind of information you need. Mm. And and to be fair, there are so many really, really good electricians out there that have got their 2391 or their 4 and 5. They've done the the appropriate level 3 qualifications. They've done their time in the chair. They can do their calculations. They know the stuff back to front and they've got enough experience they, they should be knocking EngTech out every day of the week. Mm. That, that, that isn't a difficult grade for the guys to work for. If you've been an electrician for five years, you've got the experience under your belt. 
actually i would you know I, i'm doing i'm doing some people a disservice here five years i'm i'm not even going to say five years if you've been working at a job at a a good level and you've got the qualifications then you should be able to knock this out yeah the questions aren't hard, that hard you've got three questions to answer that that go into uh try try and pull out some of your experiences but it's not difficult gary it really isn't yeah. why, why do you think more don't go that route what i get a lot when i bring it up and, and i like to discuss it with my ap's because for me it's their foot in the door if they want to develop on and become an ae then you've got to be a minimum of incorporated engineer or a chartered engineer um, some di- some disciplines you can't do without the chartership and that's fair enough but you need to start on the road somewhere otherwise i'm not going to have a replacement in a few years time right yeah so but what i get back is um what's the benefit and uh will it increase my pay mm. and initially on paper I don't know any jobs that I've seen that have asked for EngTech as a requirement. Eng, CNG, yes, you see those, mm. but EngTech, I, I don't know of any job applications where where I've seen that as a specification. No, yeah, likewise. But for me, uh, if I had two guys, two Garys turning up, uh, one of them was a good spark. He had all his paperwork. And he'd been working in the industry for five years. Uh, and the other guy, the other Gary, was exactly the same, except he'd done EngTech. I would be giving the guy with EngTech a crack of the whip because mm. it just shows that he cares that little bit more about his development and where he's going. Yeah, and that, that's that's probably a, a great bit of advice to uh, end the podcast on. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do have uh, one last question before we go, though. Um, what is your favourite movie? Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Do you know what? Eighty-two. I've, I've never seen Blade Runner. No, Gary, <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> What's it actually about? Can you fill me in? Um, uh, it's uh, set in the future. It's about a group of androids that have been produced to help us, and a group of them have gone rogue. And have decided that they actually quite like like being autonomous and working under their own um, cognition rather than doing what we say. And the Blade Runner, Harrison Ford, is one of the guys that sent out to bring them back, either uh, switch them off or bring them back into line. So it's it's one of the... um, it's an it's it's a, a an iconic film for me the yeah. the the sounds in it uh just do something for me um but it's along the lines of the the first star star wars 1977 was the first movie i watched as a, a grown-up person by myself as it were right yeah so uh, the, the, it falls in along that sort of lines for me okay well, that's brilliant I'm gonna. I, do you know what? I'm gonna watch that in the next <laughs> week, and I'll let you know how I get on. Brilliant. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, thanks a lot for your time. It's been uh, a great chat. Thank you very much, Gary. And thank you everyone for listening. <laughs>